Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you <laughs> would you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Mm-hmm. Join us in the curiosity shop at patreon.com backslash Bones and Bobbins. <laughs> Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude Whoa. and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group. Yes, which is actually delightful. It's true. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid, marvelously misanthropic hosts. And wow, <laughs> I just missed about half of that. <laughs> Sorry, everybody, we're going on an adventure. Um, carry on. We are indeed, and this is Bones and Bobbins. Season 4, Episode 2, If Not For Them. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast, and I go by she and her. And I am Natalie from Uber Dark Designs and Official True Crime Creative, and my pronouns are also she and her. Excellent. <laughs> How you doing? What's up? Fucking I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, uh, unclear. Um, valid, valid. Yeah, I, I'm definitely having some sort of combination ADHD autism bullshit at the moment. <laughs> no, I don't know what's going on, but my brain is moving faster than my mouth is, and then my mouth just isn't, mm. so, they you know. don't happen. Whatevs. Uh, I turn 40 really soon. You do? In nine days? Right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yep. So the the day before our Patreon episode comes out. Ooh. Yes. How are you feeling uh, about that? Uh, I've, I've crossed know. that. I've crossed that bridge. So I've been there. You know, I loved my 30s. I was excited to turn 30. I was excited to turn 35. I don't know how I feel about 40. That just seems weird to me. It is weird. Um, I also, for a lack of a better cliche, I think that the 40s are the new 30s For in a okay. lot of ways. Um you just become even more solidified in the fact that you're a grown-ass adult. You're usually more comfortable in your skin. You, you know what I mean? Like, you, you just... You get... I don't feel like the world needs me to be any more me. <laughs> <laughs> you are delightful, though! Um, yeah, I think there's just... 
instead of having less of a tolerance for bullshit, I think he, at this point in the 40s, you start to develop that dance where you just skirt right the fuck around it and don't even have to deal with it. <laughs> the I won't be doing that yeah. response? Yeah, so not today, Satan. No. <laughs> just, I do yeah. not receive that. <laughs> I think... I think some of this, like... I think my... I was excited about my 30s because it was funny that I was in my 30s because I looked like a teenager and I don't look like a teenager anymore but I also don't feel like I look how I thought 40 would look Mm. yeah I would never guess that you were 40 I'm looking at you but then again I guess nobody I know (laughs) <laughs> looks like I like young me thought 40 would look yeah because we all discovered sunscreen <laughs> that's true yeah I don't know so but the reason that I know that I'm having feelings about it is that um a couple mornings ago I got a phone call from a number that I did not recognize and I didn't answer it because I don't answer the phone. <laughs> right? Fuck you, don't call me. Um, <laughs> Leave it at the beat. Yeah, so then I was looking at the um, voicemail transcript, and it was a plastic surgeon's office. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so then I, I'm thinking, oh, no. Oh, no, what did insomnia Xanax Haley do? Oh, no. What <laughs> What happened? <laughs> And so I went back and looked at my internet history, and apparently I decided at like 4 a.m. that I needed um, under eye surgery. Surgery? Not even like Botox? I don't need any fillers. You don't need anything. Like, I don't, what would you even have for, I don't. Uh, to, To remove the puffiness. I mean, I have really puffy under eyes it's genetic my mom also has them and they will eventually look somewhat like deflated balloons and that is not the case right now but apparently if you have this surgery you only ever have to do it once and it never happens again and so i apparently decided that i needed that um which, not really. I mean, at some point, I almost certainly will do a little tweaking because I can if I want to. Absolutely. Um, I'm just squeamish because, you know, knife by eyes. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to be awake la- for it. I know, but like, I could not get LASIK. <laughs> like, I don't, I will wear glasses. Oh, I couldn't to, get like, LASIK. Die. <laughs> But you're you're awake for LASIK. Yeah, I know. My Um, mom has this weird, fucked up eye pressure thing. I got nope. I just yeah, it's nope. There's a clockwork orange moment that happens. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. And I know what you're talking about. And I'm like, nope. Just I I couldn't. I I don't. That woman, that tiny little human, is one of the most badass bitches that I know. Man, <laughs> she's like, man, that's mine. <laughs> like, 
Jacob. No. So yeah, I apparently went down a um, a forehead Botox and under eye plastic surgery rabbit hole. Wow. Um, which is kind of, I mean, neither of those things are things that are an issue at the moment, but they're also things that, yeah, I could throw money at that at some point, whatever. But that my subconscious was just like, I know what we're going to do. Well, (laughs) your brain is turned off, but you are still ambulatory. We're going to request a consultation. (laughs) I think it's funny because my moment like that last night was like, I ended up eating like, like six graham cracker squares. Uh, and ordering a bunch of uh, vitamins because I'm out. <laughs> I yeah, relatable. Um, yeah, I, so apparently, self care happens during an insomnia, but not a normal time. Yeah, I mean, I definitely like insomnia is responsible for many weird purchases that I have made. I used I to love have them. a running yeah, I used to have a running thread on Twitter. Of um, strange purchases that I made. This is my favorite. This was my favorite purchase of yours, though. (laughs) What's that? Bones and Bobbins. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. This podcast is an insomnia purchase. I forgot about that. (laughs) I remember seeing that and I was like, the second I saw it, I'm like, I'm in. I'm in. Sign me up. I am fairly certain that you were who I had in mind <laughs> when I bought it um, because I knew you would be in. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, my gosh. It was a, it was an excellent purchase. Oh, my God. Um, I can't believe I haven't told you this. Remember, speaking of the, the you don't answer the phone. Yes. The fucking Scientologist found me after four no. years. After four <laughs> years. And my parents <laughs> telling them I was dead. <laughs> so I didn't answer the phone. It was like a Minneapolis number too, which is not uncommon for me for, for me to get because I've got friends in Minneapolis. We're not yeah. that far from there, you know. And I was like, huh. But I let it go to voicemail because, again, you know, like, yeah, give me a text, you know. So then right. I get a text from the same number, and it, it, the name didn't sound familiar. And they said they were from like Chicago.org, and I was like, calling from a Up Minneapolis you now. And I was like, yeah, uh, what? You know what? What? What would you? What? What do you want? The fuck is that? <laughs> right. And then he was. He said something about he used. He specifically used the term audit. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Are you talking Uh-oh. about Scientology? <laughs> and he was like, Yes. And then I refused to respond. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, Are you fucking kidding me? And then like I was like, Nope. Nope. Wrong number. Wrong person. Don't know what you're talking about absolutely not so he tried to call again and then i get this text did you block me (laughs) and then he tried from another fucking phone number and i was like look yes i have been (laughs) dodging your asses for decades at this point if you think i'm gonna look at another number with the same fucking area code in minneapolis and be like oh maybe this is someone completely different to allow me to answer this you've got another thing coming oh my god so yeah it was. Oh. Do you know about the uh, Scientologists in the Times Square subway station? No, I do not. <laughs> so in the Times Square subway station, there are always 
Scientologists that are ready to give you a stress test. Oh, um, and also dianetics. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so, like, you will walk by and mm-hmm. they will be like, would you like to take a stress test? I'm like, no, motherfucker, this is Manhattan. <laughs> this is New York, motherfucker. We're all stressed. <laughs> like, exactly. You are in the Times Square subway station. Yeah. Nobody wants to be here. Because you are either here because you have to go to work or home from work, mm-hmm. or you're a tourist. Yeah. Like, those are the only reasons that you would ever be in the subway station. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, oh, it's so funny. And they've got signs, and, like, it's just, it's like a little booth. And apparently nobody cares, because they were literally there every single day that I was because I used to have to go into Times Square when I worked by Rockefeller Center. Mm-hmm. And um, every day. God, they're just something else. Yeah, and I mean, you walk by the building. It's there. But it's just a creepy, weird building. That they're all creepy. It gives weird. sinister vibes. Oh, yeah. But the people in the subway station that actually want to talk to me, like, no. That's extra no. <laughs> Absolutely not. I don't not. know you, no. No. But also, you really don't want me. This is what I I'm saying. I can assure you that I would fuck shit up from the inside. Seriously. Seriously. Yeah. Not only that, but I want to drop kick Tom Cruise. That's your demigod at the moment. Like, I, no. <laughs> somebody oh i can't even remember where i heard this on a podcast somewhere this week um someone said that uh tom cruise is the only person that scientology has actually worked for <laughs> and it's so accurate yeah, although it did work for him but like, good job it did it, i would also argue john travolta because prior to oh, that's true prior to his uh, leap into the Kool-Aid pond. He didn't have, he had a, a long, like a couple long decades of not being anything. And the next thing you know, he was back with like Pulp Fiction and he just fucking hit his stride again then. And that, so that, that I would, I would say John Travolta too. But at the same time, he's Do you not- remember when he played the Archangel Michael? I do. <laughs> I do. I Those really- wings freaked me out. those were some big wings oh my god yeah him in that jukebox like i don't it's not yeah the only thing i remember about that movie is the wings moving yeah and me being like absolutely not <laughs> i think the fuck not nope Mm-mm. like it's one thing if you're watching touched by an angel with your grandma <laughs> And, like, shit starts glowing. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, it's nice little subtle. (laughs) Yeah. Don't give me animatronic wings. Yeah. Yeah, those things are... And they were. Badly animatronic wings. Like, not badly for the time. They were great for the time. Right. But, like, jerky animatronic wings. Right. It was not smooth. Okay. We should definitely... Probably jump in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right now, yeah, we're going to take a little break to thank all of our fantastic curiosity, curiosity, yeah, curiosity (laughs) members over Uh on the Patreon. 
We absolutely adore you. And if you became a member right now, about now, if I remember, or he reminds me. <laughs> you You've would, never forgotten before, to you, be fair. You would get a totally normal and not at all creepy, creepy, <laughs> creepy welcome. A creepy welcome? Yes. Okay. And shout out here, uh, right about now. <laughs> yeah, because you're the best. Yes. And we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you. Probably around 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning hopped up on Xanax. You know, <laughs> just, just saying. 3.33. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's my favorite. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want it on this fun, not only are you going to get like all the other like normal surprisey stuff, you also are going to get like a huge backlog of Patreon only episodes. We're coming up on number 60. It's true. 60. I know. That's a lot of fun. And we get you get a little uh you get to hear the cats. <laughs> my, oh my offspring. Gosh. It's a little little less edited. Um a little more Don't tell them that. Well, because they're <laughs> this episode has been unhinged. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's a little more personal, I guess. We're a little less a little less polished. Yeah. Yes. Because we're, we're normally so very polished and professional. Oh, just classy. Uh, but you know who are classy? It's the ladies we're talking about today. It's true. So it is February. Indeed. And so it's Black History Month, as everyone in the world knows, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and also it's my birthday month. Yay! And so... I like I like a woman with a plan. I like a woman with a system, and I like gear mm-hmm. broadly. Like, give me a product set. I need the whole set. Yes. Yeah. And so, due to that being deeply satisfying to me, I want to tell you about Madam C. J. Walker. Yes. I'm excited. And she is, according to many, um, and according specifically to the Guinness Book of World Records, the first female self-made millionaire. Yes. Yes. Um, and there were other people about the same time doing, I mean, she was well-documented is the thing she had the receipts she had the receipts we love a lady with receipts yes um so who was she you may be wondering i I mean you know that she's a millionaire (laughs) yes but how'd she get that money i will tell you all right so madam cj walker was born sarah breedlove on December 23rd of 1867 near Delta, Louisiana. And I just need to take a moment to marvel at the fact that my house was already like 20 years old. Wow. At this point. So that's terrifying. I just think she had a great name. Yes, it's true. Um, All right, so... Like I said, she was born on December 23rd, 1867, in Louisiana. 
and she was a black woman and the first child in her formerly enslaved family to be born into freedom wow. um, because the Civil War mm-hmm. had come to a close in April of 1865. So, I mean, that sort of breaks my brain because the idea of enslaving people Mm-mm. breaks my brain. Right. But, like, knowing that... Y- you were the first child in your family born into freedom is kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, but alas, started out on a good note. Things went a bit downhill from there. Oh, no. So she was orphaned at seven years old and... Her mother had died of what was likely cholera in 1872, and her father died a year later. Oh. Yeah. And she was one of six children, and she ended up moving to Vicksburg, Mississippi at age 10 to live with her older sister and brother-in-law, what with her being an orphan. I have absolutely no idea what she was doing in the three intervening years (laughs) oh my goodness at least she Um, had family though i mean that's that's good yep and as as far as i know all of her siblings were older that it's that seemed to be the case um so when she moved to mississippi she also started working because 10 year olds definitely should well anyway um so she started working as a domestic servant which i sort of imagine was what she was doing in her the intervening years between being orphaned and making that move because it didn't seem to be weird yeah that like it didn't seem to be a sudden um change in life Uh, from my research according to her own statements she had only three years of formal education in her early childhood which all came from attending Sunday school literacy lessons at church yes which I just recently found out was why it was called Sunday school is because it was the only education that was available to to many, and that's where they learned the very basics of, like, reading and writing. Yeah, I don't think I realized that until, like, researching more into history. I mean, it makes sense because the church was often the point of contact to right anyone in the community. The center, yeah. But um, especially children. And, I mean, because any time spent there is also child care. Sure. And yeah, uh, call back to vacation Bible school. Of my <laughs> All right. So her childhood experiences of growing up too soon extended into her early adulthood. In 1882, when she was 14 years old, Sarah married Moses McWilliams to escape abuse from her brother-in-law. It's unclear how old Moses was at the time. 
and most of the sources that I saw didn't think this was particularly shady. It's just, it's still heartbreaking. Yes. Um, And around the age of 18, she gave birth to a daughter, um, Lelia, and then Moses died in 1887, leaving Sarah a widow at age 20. Wow. A widow and a single mother at age 20. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in 1888, Sarah and... I want to say Layla, and it's not Layla, um, but all I can think of is Futurama, which is kind of a problem, but it's um, L-E-I-L-A. So... Layla. Layla, right? Yeah. All right, so... In 1888, Sarah and Layla moved to St. Louis, where three of Sarah's brothers lived. And there she would work as a laundress for about a dollar a day. Oof. Yeah, not great. But she was also, at this time, involved in her local church, which was uh, St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, where she also sang. And she was inspired by the women in her church community um, and longed for more education and the kind of educated life that she interpreted them to be leading. Mm -hmm. And she was determined to make enough money to send her daughter to actual school. Oh, okay. And... As far as I know, that happened because they would later both go on to build a business empire. And her daughter seemed very well-rounded. Right. Now, moving along to 1894, um, Sarah remarried. But then she left her second husband around 1903. Nope. And then in 1906, Sarah married her third husband, who was Charles Joseph Walker, a newspaper ad salesman. And that's also where the name um, Madam C.J. Walker came from. And... Uh, sorry. In 1912, the couple divorced, but the name Madam C.J. Walker stuck. I mean, that's a good name. It is a good name. It's a really good name. All right. Working in the harsh environment of a laundry, likely coupled with some nutritional deficiencies and a very, very common for the time lack of access to frequent bathing opportunities and also cleansers gentle enough for skin Mm -hmm. and hair. Um, None of that life was great for Sarah's skin. And she had some pretty severe dandruff issues and problems with balding areas on her scalp and other skin irritations which as a woman with eczema 
which absolutely loves to throw dance parties on my scalp and in my eyebrows. Oh, no. My head tingles in sympathy. And also my hair falls out in sympathy. Hmm. And my back and my chest and my hands and my left knee also itch. <laughs> Just listen, the left I'm one. <laughs> yep. So, anyway, I, I, I see you, Sarah. <laughs> I... Uh, I I understand. I pulled out quite a lot of hair this morning in the shower. Um, so, like anyone would, me very much included, Sarah wanted that shit to stop. Interestingly, the three brothers that Sarah had moved to be closer to were barbers and were knowledgeable about hair care. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so taking an interest in products specifically formulated for African-American hair care needs, Sarah dipped her toe into the beauty industry for the first time when she signed on to commissioned sales for Poro Company hair care products um, from the, at the time, famed African-American hair care entrepreneur Annie Malone. During her time working with Malone, Sarah would also start to develop a hair care product line of her own, which would not make future Annie Malone very happy. I was going to say, I could send some uh, discontent. Mm, yeah. Yeah, poor, poor Annie Malone. Um, in 1905, then 37-year-old Sarah and her daughter moved to Denver, Colorado. Okay. And, yeah, I. that seems like a leap, but you know, you do you. Right. Um, for a while, Sarah continued to work as a sales agent for Annie Malone, and she also continued to work on her own products. And I also just realized the reason that she probably moved to Denver was westward expansion. Uh, yeah. Um, because it is not terribly far removed from, like, the 49ers and such. So... That makes sense. There were lots of new towns that were becoming established. So, okay. So, while she was in Denver, for a while, Sarah continued to work as a sales agent for Annie Malone. And she also continued during that time to work on her own products. And in 1906, when Sarah married Charles Joseph Walker her fledgling business was about to take off. So Sarah had met Charles Joseph Walker uh, before she moved to Colorado. And I guess it worked out. I Unclear how he ended up in Denver with her, but, you know, whatever. It's not about him. <laughs> no, it, it truly isn't about him. Um, so her business was about to take off and following in the footsteps of French beauty entrepreneurs, specifically women, she styled herself Madame. Uh-huh. And her husband, who 
was also her business partner at the time, just happened to be an advertising professional and contributed to advertising and promotion efforts. So now we're going to move on to what would become known as the Walker system. To start, Sarah, who is now professionally known as Madam C.J. Walker, sold her projects door-to-door, teaching women how to use the products and style their hair. Not without drama from Annie Malone, who accused her of stealing a formulation for a petroleum jelly and sulfur combination. Um, But it also turns out that that combination had already been in use for like 100 years. (laughs) Oops. I mean, (laughs) yeah. It didn't hurt that she had experienced Annie Malone's products beforehand, but it also wasn't, like, they were reinventing the wheel, both of them, at at this point. Yeah, I mean, I'd imagine that a lot of, I mean, a lot of specifically, like, skincare, hair care, all of that. I mean, that happens now, all the time. Right, but it's also birthed from, like you know tonics of yore and folk healing yeah folk healing handed down from generations so i mean it makes it makes sense that yeah yeah well i mean to be fair petroleum jelly i mean that yeah until um (laughs) but anyway but (laughs) so 1906 was proving to be a pretty busy year because at this time uh leela was put in charge of the mail order portion of the business and Sarah and her husband were traveling around the southern and eastern parts of the country to introduce their products to new customers. In 1908, Sarah and her husband moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In Pittsburgh, they opened a beauty parlor, and they also founded the Layla College to train... No, sorry, the Layla College... Um, to train what she called hair culturalists, which is a depiction I fucking love. Like, yes, absolutely. Right. Bring culture to hair and, like, embrace, I don't know. The natural culture that, yeah. Yeah, there, there's literally nothing that me, a white girl, can say right. about um, about black hair care that would be groundbreaking in any way. Yeah. Anyway, I just love that she called it hair culturalist because I, love I think that it's too. so apt for the brand that she was building. And so Sarah was a strong advocate for black women's financial and economic independence And to further her reach, um, training programs in what was called the Walker System began for her network of licensed sale agents across the United States. And these agents who were selling the products earned healthy commissions on the products that they sold. And so she was truly helping them build businesses. Mm Mm-hmm. And big moves continued to happen as the business grew. The Denver office was closed in 1907. So, 
how did we say the name was pronounced? Leela? Layla. No. Layla. I think. I, I, I think so, too. And I don't know why I can't. My brain keeps twisting the letters around. Um, anyway, so um, the Denver office closed in 1907, so Layla could move to Pittsburgh to run operations there. I just love how much of a family affair this is. Yeah, me too. Um, and Sarah also opened a new office in Indianapolis, which culminated in the establishment of the headquarters for the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. Nice. Yeah. Um, And in addition to the company's home base in Indianapolis, Sarah also expanded her business to include a factory, a hair salon, and a beauty school to train sales agents. She also added a research laboratory. That's so fucking amazing. Yeah. And at brilliant Layla's insistence, she also, um, at this time, opened a salon in Harlem in New York City, which was quickly growing into the epicenter of black culture in New York. And I guess she wasn't totally convinced but Layla was like um yes yes <laughs> do this and, now yeah and so she did and it became a cultural hub in and of itself which is really cool it's very cool and as the company grew so did her staff Sarah placed women in both staff and key management positions which doesn't sound too weird to us considering she is a woman and an entrepreneur but it still wasn't very common no for women to even women hiring women to have them in key leadership positions so it's kind of great i love that and according to sarah um as she sort of developed her brand further um what she called the walker method was designed to promote hair growth and to condition the scalp um, through the use of her products so her system and i love a system (laughs) uh, included a shampoo a pomade that was said to promote hair growth a brushing technique and a styling technique that used iron combs And the company promised that, quote, lackluster and brittle hair would become soft and luxuriant. So literally nothing has changed in hair care marketing. (laughs) No, um, but that's, I mean. In a hundred years. That's super smart. Because you're, I mean, you're, this, that is like a whole system. I mean, it's. Oh, yeah. Including the styling. You want to have the whole set of the things and do all the stuff. Like, but it also it, gives her control over how they're using her products so that they use them properly, so they get the results correctly, so that they then turn into their own, you know, poster children for that product. Because it's, you know, doing this oh, thing yeah. where, where, like, you know, you if we walk into, like, if I go into Ulta, I break out in hives. I don't know what anything is. <laughs> I don't, you know what I mean? Whereas, like, yep. this, it's, like, not only 
it, it's, it's, it's hand walking you through the whole entire thing. Like I was proud of myself when I was in like, I don't know, high school and college. And I used the Clinique system or step one, two, and three, you know, it was like a bar of soap right. and the toner and then the lotion like that was, but this, I mean, it is really smart because then, yeah, it, it gives them, like I said, you, they, they know how they're, they know the results are going to get and they're going to get the same results every time if they do the steps properly. Right, and so by 1917, the company is said to have trained nearly 20,000 women Holy in the shit. method. That's amazing. Um, yeah, so uh, really great segue that you accidentally made into that, into my next <laughs> sentence, um, <laughs> which I love. And um, several thousand women worked as sales agents. Wow, that's great. And... Well, things sort of started off as a door-to-door sales technique. Um, you gotta start somewhere. You, hmm? you gotta start somewhere. Oh, yeah. Um, but it transitioned into something different for exactly the reasons that you were mentioning mm-hmm. about having a controlled environment for results. So the Walker beauty culturalists frequently demonstrated their products in their own homes or in beauty salons so they could show how the products worked because they needed to have access to water. Right. And so being able to have everything set up in exactly the way that it needed to be to truly show how everything was supposed to look um was really really helpful and i think that bringing it into beauty salons was a goddamn stroke of genius seriously yeah it's like going to the makeup counter in um sex and having them sort out your life yes very expensively sort out yeah ask how i know (laughs) (laughs) i've left crying i know the thing (laughs) oh i i have just left with bags filled with stuff i didn't need because i was too midwestern to say no (laughs) yep 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 i told you about the time i got a bra fitting at sex right yes you did (laughs) (laughs) well if anybody doesn't know that story, let's just say it was an extremely hands-on experience <laughs> and that somewhere in our backlog, I talked about it. Yes. All right. Anyway. So moving on from building her brand and her product line, her next focus was helping black women build businesses. And so because Walker made herself a brand way, way, way before the time of influencers, she was recognizable. And she focused on advertising in African-American newspapers and magazines. And she also continued to travel to promote her products in new areas and put what I like to think of as a face with the name on the tin, although her (laughs) face was also on the tin. Nice. Um, Right? And like I said, Sarah and her products were recognizable in black communities all over the U.S. 
and but Sarah did so much more than create a successful beauty brand. She also taught sales techniques and grooming techniques specific to her products to her agents. And then with that knowledge, she encouraged other black women to build businesses and financial independence. And she even helped like with budgeting and the basic knowledge that you would need to actually keep track of money within a business which simply wasn't available to most women at that time and here she is being like all right this is how you do this and these products are recognizable and you're going to get good reception i love that yeah, yeah, me too. Because you know it's from a place of empowerment. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, the whole thing is set up not only to empower black women to take control over how their hair is taken care of and have things that are formulated specifically for them and be put forth as important, um, but also then to teach them that there's not, they don't have to just accept the only work that's available to them based on the fact that they are black, um, that they can do the same thing and, and have their own business and, and learn and grow. And it's fucking amazing. Yeah. And out of curiosity, I also looked up when Avon started Mm -hmm. because it's such a similar model. And like my grandma was an Avon lady (laughs) and, um, it also started around the same time as um, Sarah's business was starting. But then many, many, um, there are a lot of very, very similar businesses with similar business models happening at that time because going to people's houses was, and word of mouth, was by far the best way to market. I would have sucked. I would not have been able to go door to door. That would not have been a thing I could have done. No. (laughs) Mm. Nope, nope. No. Yeah. So, (laughs) um, so like I said, she encouraged other black women to build businesses and financial independence and she was basically a force of economics and a force of nature who went from a seven-year-old orphan to a self-made millionaire and philanthropist. Amazing. Yeah, and there's this photo of her that I forgot to put in the show notes, but I will add um, to the show notes before I post them online that is her in her car. Like she was, and she's driving, and it's hmm. a car filled with people, and she looks like the most badass lady. Like oh, I love it. I want to ride with her, please. Um, and it's just like I don't know that it was particularly normal for women to be driving. Um, and it was a nice car. <laughs> love it i just i love everything about it all right so going back to the beginning was she really the first female millionaire 
eh, there are other contenders for the title. But, like I said, Madam C.J. Walker had the receipts and a documented rise in the business world. And she was also registered in the Guinness Book of World Records. There you go. Because she had that documented meteoric rise. And she also had good company at that time in the realm of other black women entrepreneurs. And there were several other prominent women who marketed their own hair care methods and products during this time period. Um, Like uh, poor Annie, who was mad. Um, Oh, Annie. Which, I mean, fair enough. If somebody who worked for you was like, uh, yeah, but I'm going to do this, but also better. I get how you might be a bit bitter about it. Yeah, but at the same time, Annie had the opportunity to grow. You know? It- and to be fair, I do not know um, how Annie's business ended up working out. Although I do know that it was introduced at... Um, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, which was um, the St. Louis World's Fair. Oh, okay. And that it did not, unfortunately, receive very much attention because the fair itself had not been marketed to black families in the way that it was to white families. And so... I just looked, there weren't enough customers. I just looked up at what a million dollars in I put in nineteen ten figure. Yeah, uh, would be now thirty one million two hundred forty one thousand seven hundred eighty nine dollars and forty seven cents, roughly. Fuck yes, it was, and I don't know how many millions she had. That's amazing. Yeah. Get you all the cars, all of the cars. Yeah. <laughs> So that is Madam C.J. Walker. And I also really love that in talking about this story and in the research I did, very little dwelling upon the fact that she was like, see ya to a couple husbands (laughs) happened. Yeah. Like, that was fine. She was busy. And I, I... love that she also did not she didn't face the consequences that she could have for that but also she was such a trailblazer that the rules probably didn't apply right I mean how many how many people in any decade in any circumstances are like I'm gonna create an education opportunity and and a business opportunity for my child as a single mom like i i'm a single mom and i i was just trying to get my kids through if they were alive and fed at the end of the day, i, I mean but sometimes. frankly you already have one but in college yeah but it, and but it's, it's like it's you did amazing. the damn thing and you are also an entrepreneur <laughs> it's just amazing to me though like it just god oh, yeah. i, I mean, would have loved i would have loved to just be in her presence you know yeah and she also at some point um had a gathering of i believe they were the sales agents and of like 
200 people and it was thought that that was the first time that that many women business people had met specifically to talk about business matters all in the same place business women it was the first time that shit had happened that's all i i i would believe that yeah so there's lots more information about her there's also apparently a netflix series Ooh, i'm gonna that watch that I didn't know about Ooh. um and i have to just point out how funny i think this is but one of my sources is town and country magazine <laughs> <laughs> and okay i i I just want to say to them, what the fuck? <laughs> um, and also, town and country seems to have come <laughs> come, up, yes. come yes. a long way. Right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, anyway, so I guess her um, Netflix show is called Self Made. I'm going to definitely check it out. That's awesome. Yeah, and I don't know how well they handled it. I don't know anything about it. I just happened. It was in the last article I read Mm, when I was researching. So um, otherwise, I would have watched it. But yeah, so Madam C.J. Walker is awesome. Yes. A plus. So today, I'm going to talk about an insanely amazing badass woman as well who was a total pioneer in women's cycling. Yes. Today I'm going to talk about Kitty Knox. Which is such a good name. It is. Um, And she has a bizarre commonality with Madam C.J. Walker. Um, Not so much bizarre, just sad. Uh, So Mm. Catherine Towell Knox, known as Katie, was born on October 7th, 1874 in East Cambridge, Massachusetts. She was the daughter of a white mother, Catherine Tull, from East Parsonfield, Maine, who was a mill worker, and a black father, John H. Knox, who was a tailor from Philadelphia. And it sounds like uh, he was a freed slave. Um, So uh, when when Kitty was just around seven years old, um, like uh, Sarah, her father passed away. Mm. Um, it was from unknown causes. Uh, and in the wake of uh, her father's death, Kitty, her mother, and her older brother, Ernest, moved to the west end of Boston on the corner of Irving and Cambridge um, streets. In So her parents were allowed to be a family? Yes. That's, the... that's amazing. Oh, this is, yeah. So in the, I guess in the late 1880s and early 1890s, that particular area in Boston was home to, like... I mean, Cambridge is a separate city. No, it's on Irving and Cambridge streets. Oh, yeah, streets. sorry. That's okay. <laughs> um, but I said that specifically because Jeremy's uncle lives in Cambridge and he might be listening. <laughs> and nope. then I was nope. going to get, Irving like... and Cambridge streets yeah. in Boston. Okay. On the corner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess this this particular area was like home, like the whole neighborhood was all um, immigrants and African-Americans. 
and while oh, great. like the west end of Boston where they were at struggled financially, it was like extremely progressive in in integration of many different cultures and of like interracial families. I found That's wonderful. I found a um a TikTok where um this guy quoted that at that time in that area 40% of the families were interracial which huh. but I could not find data to back that up. Um, I mean I assume that it's also a place where you would move. Right, right. If you did fall in love with someone who was a different race. Right, you knew you were safe there. Right. To start a family. Yeah. So, um, after they moved, Katie found work as a seamstress, and her brother worked as a steam fitter, uh, and she began to show interest in cycling early on, and she saved up money from her job to buy a bicycle. And uh, adorable. Soon, Katie became well-known in her neighborhood for her various outings on her bike, and now a young gal on a bike sounds pretty normal to us. But if you remember the episode we did covering bikes and their impact on feminism, at this mm-hmm. time, they were still... Was she wearing bloomers? <laughs> oh, she did her own outfits. Oh, Yeah, I'm so uh, <laughs> they were still super new then, and they ran about $75. Which is almost... That's a lot of money. That's almost $2,500 of money today. So, Kitty works super hard. I hope that was a fucking nice bike. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, It was a men's bike. But we'll get to that. <laughs> so, it was said that Kitty was part of the Riverside Cycle Club, uh, which was along with a few other friends and fellow female cycling enthusiasts, which is also said to have been theoretically the first... Black female bike club. Um, cool. And now there's some speculation about whether or not they were actually considering card carrying members uh, of like the whole biking thing because women were not allowed to participate. Because bullshit, bullshit, gatekeeping. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, male dominated sport, blah. Right. So Kitty would continue, though, to attract the attention of other cyclists as she began to participate in, like, actual meets and, like, winning most of the competitions she took part in. Nice. In 1893, uh, Kitty was accepted as a member of the League of American Wheelman, or LAW, uh, which was predominantly made up of white men. Now, our gal attained attention in other unconventional ways while riding the bicycle. For starters, she insisted on using a bicycle that was specifically marketed to men only. In addition, With the crossbar? Yeah. So in addition, she pedaled around wearing baggy trousers of her own design instead of the long skirts that women were expected to wear for this means of transportation. And we covered Excellent. all of that. Um, a description of Knox winning a costume in the Bearings version 11, number 24 from July 11th of 1895 reads, one of the most interesting events of the day was a contest between six women, one, each one wearing a different style of cycling costume. They rode round the track twice and then were judged by Henry Haney, Miss Shaw and C.G. Percival. The first prize went to Miss Katie Knox for a suit which consisted of a shirt waist, 
men's short coat, and bloomers to the knee with tight leggings from the knee on down. The whole costume, including the hat, was of gray checked goods. Yes! <laughs> uh, I have picture, a crush on her already. Right? Shoot. Pictures galore. Don't worry. So she, she became known for her unique style and was often referred to... So wait, was this a fashion contest no it wasn't but i don't know maybe that was part of it they rode around twice and then they were judged i don't yeah i don't know if it was they judged on the costume or if it was the cycling i'm not entirely certain but i mean either way i kind of like it (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) um so she was her like she was often referred to as having an elegant riding technique. Hmm. But because people are fucking horrible, her appearance was frequently scrutinized by journalists. Well, of course it was. While the newspapers failed to describe in great detail how attractive any of the male cyclists are, they succeeded in giving an account of Kitty's physical appearance and wardrobe and nearly every meat covered. Now be paired. To get real mad and have some weird, uncomfy feelings. I mean, I'm kind of glad I get to know what she was wearing. Right? Like, I'm, but also, fuck you. Especially because she, she designed it. She designed it and made it. Yeah. So I'm like, that's right. Men are boring. Give me more kitty. Um, In so, several ways. Right. So brace yourself. <clears throat> she is right. at times described by journalists as a comely colored maiden murky goddess of beanville <laughs> and this one and this one i kind of like beautiful and buxom black bloomerite okay i kind of like right, that one too right i'm like i that one i get kitty seemed to inspire all sorts of colorful phrases pun pretty much intended regarding her color and her gender despite the fact that these aspects had not one single fucking thing to do with her ability as a very serious cyclist. And but her boobs. They didn't, even, they didn't comment on her boobs, as far as I know, which is good. I mean, buxom. I suppose, yeah. And Kitty, not giving a fuck and just wanting to ride, just kept on being Kitty. Like, good. Right? A plus. Right? So another famous incident, and actually, I think the most famous incident... Uh, with Kitty uh, showing her defiance occurred in July of 1895. So she entered an annual meet at Asbury Park. It was reported that she was denied entry and was not recognized as a member of the LAW, despite being a card-carrying member for a couple of years at this point. It was Hmm. also reported that Kitty was denied service by restaurants and hotels while staying in Jersey for the meet, uh, and the situation was promptly documented all over the freaking place. Um, right. So first up, we've got the Referee and Cycle Trade Journal. journal. Um, and their description uh, was considerable of a sensation has been awakened by the presence of Miss Kitty Knox, the pretty colored girl from Boston. She has been member of the LAW for a number of years, but this is the first national meet she has attended. When she made application at the league headquarters for tickets, the tickets entitling her to the various privileges accorded league members, she was refused, although she presented her league ticket. At several places of entertainment, she was also refused admission. 
She, however, joined in several of the runs and has been doing the best that she could to enjoy herself. Vice President G.O.A. Perkins says that she must receive all the privileges accorded of other league members or there will be trouble. Fuck yeah, Perkins. Right? Uh, so, and her perseverance in the whole situation uh, also caught the attention of uh, far-off newspapers, such as the San Francisco Call, which described the uproar when Miss Knox, whose appearance and dress has been objects of admiration all day, walked into the committee room at the local clubhouse and presented her league card for a credential badge. The gentleman in charge refused to recognize the card, and the young woman withdrew very quietly. 99 out of every 100 members interviewed expressed the heartiest sympathy for her and condemnation of the hasty action of the badge committee. The, yeah. the New York Times reported, with the Boston delegation is also Miss Kitty Knox, a pretty young colored girl who rides in the Riverside Cycle Club, Boston's only colored cycle club. Uh, and they cut right to it. They were like, this afternoon, Miss Knox did a few fancy cuts in front of the clubhouse and was requested to desist. It is thought that this episode will result in temporarily opening the color line question. Some of the Asbury Park Wheelman officials, it is said, will protest against permitting Miss Knox to remain a member of the league. And the local kickers say they will have a reckoning with the league secretary, Abbott Bassett, upon his arrival. <clears throat> back <clears throat> Now, back in 1894, so that was before this, the LAW <clears throat> had changed its constitution to include the word white, creating a color bar for the organization. And this caused many members to question the legitimacy of Kitty's membership. Um, in his book, Boston's Cycling Craze, 1880 to 1900, Lawrence J. Finnison, who um, I'm very thankful for, and I will get into why later, details some of Kitty's experiences during this time. I'm including links. Uh, eventually, the issue of the color bar boiled over into the uh, to an LAW battle. Uh, between members who believe that the LAW's white-only membership policy be upheld and those who felt segregation was wrong. In a July 1895 issue of LAW Bulletin and Good Roads, LAW stated that Miss Kitty Knox joined the league April 21st, 1893. The word white was put in the LAW Constitution February 20th, 1894. Such laws are not and cannot be retroactive. We don't know who it was that competed in the races, and we know of no law that would kept that would keep a Negro out of an open race, be he league member or not. Um, and I have a copy of that. I have a link to a copy of that for you to be able to read. After this statement was released, Kitty was accepted fully as a member, making her the first ever African-American to be accepted by the League of American Wheelmen. However, the color bar would remain in effect within the league until it was public publicly repudiated in 1999 what yeah 1999 the fuckery so after the yeah right i was like you've got to be fucking kidding what the fuck boston seriously you're bike riders get the fuck over it uh after the asbury park meetup kitty went home to boston and was chosen as the ride leader for the league of american wheelman's massachusetts Division Summer Meet, a multi-day ride through the country. In August of 1895, the Partridge White Ribbon Open Century was almost canceled by a thunderstorm. 
none this is my favorite nonetheless many riders including kitty joyfully completed the hundred mile ride albeit covered in mud and kitty was the <laughs> only woman to finish even after, <laughs> even that sounds delightful right even after success within the cycling community kitty again was on the receiving end of discrimination and this is this is bullshit she was refused participation in another event uh, despite the event uh, beginning in actual fucking Boston, the mm. Boston Wheelman ran the event and they were a new club formed in her hometown and they would not allow any black participants. Kitty Knox's <sighs> story of courage in the face of racial tension helped desegregate the world of cycling and offered a hopeful vision for the future that ex- that accepts and supports diversity. She is featured in several cycling journals held by the Smithsonian libraries, such as uh, the referee and cycle trade journal and the bearings. Both journals can be found <laughs> in, in the Smithsonian libraries, digital library. Uh, much of her story is also detailed in the Boston's cycling craze, 1880 uh, to 1900, like I mentioned, which can be found in the National Museum of African American History and Cultural Library. And I'll hook you up with links to, uh, I believe, all of those um, in the show notes. So while unable to change LAW's discriminatory treatment against her and other African American bicyclists, Kitty generated a public debate over the whole segregation policy in a way that nobody else really had. Um, sadly, in 1900, just days after she turned 26, Kitty died at Massachusetts General Hospital of kidney disease. She was buried in a grave at Mount Auburn Cemetery that was unmarked until 2013, when three generations of her relatives attended a ceremony and dedicated a new headstone. What in the actual fuck? Knox had, like, been doomed to obscurity until 2007, when author Lorenz Finison stumbled across her name while researching that book on Boston cycling history. Passing references to Knox and cycling books prompted him to search local newspaper archives for information. And everything we know now is because of Finison's desire to, to learn more. And I am incredibly grateful that Kitty's story is finally being told. And I absolutely love how many people loved her yeah you know and as much as and again you know i feel i hate the term colored um and it was quoting it out of their but it was pretty beautiful you know like it they there was a respect there even though there were some that obviously were not respectful um but there was a love and a respect and the fact that the president was like, oh, no, she should be given all of this or there will be hell to pay. Like the fact that they backed her so much. She bucked the system in that she rode a men's bike. She wore clothing that was not deemed appropriate for a female at that time that she designed and t- and made herself, you know, like everything about what she was doing was bucking the system but clearly done so in a way that everyone loved and was delighted by her, you know, for all these newspapers to be like this delightful woman in was wrongfully, you know, 
it wasn't just cycling magazines that were like it was wrong that they didn't let her in it was wrong that they wouldn't you know let her at this restaurant or whatever and she just continued she just continued to be herself and to just not allow them to tear her down and just by being herself was defiant and rebellious and I would have loved to ride a hundred miles covered in mud with her. I'd have probably, you know, passed out from like an asthma attack two miles in, but I would try real hard <laughs> to keep up with her. Um, and I'm really, I'm really sad in that she passed so young and that her story has remained unheard for, gen- there, there's, there's probably literal generations that will never have heard of her because uh, of how long has, has gone before you know, right. her story has come to light. Um, but I just, I'm so happy that I finally got a chance to do it because I, when I was researching uh, Bicycle's impact on feminism, I had come mm. across her and I was like, oh, I want to know more about her. Especially because she, she looks, she looks like a teddy girl in her, uh-huh. and, and how That's she, exactly what I was in how she dresses. Uh, and, I'm a little sad that I don't know more about like her mother and her brother. There must have been, they must have been a very strong family unit that worked very hard for her to, to be able to save that money to buy a bike like that. Um, And for her mother and I'm sure her older brother then took the role of a father, even though, you know, um, he was a brother for them to allow her what would, what most people would have considered a frivolity let alone, you know, for anyone, let alone uh, a young black girl to have at that time. Yeah. I just want to hang out with her. Right? Right? And Kitty Knox is such a great name. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, like... I mean, honestly, it sounds like a burlesque name. (laughs) Like, I want her to have her own little bike gang. Like, I want a, a graphic novel series of her and a little bike, a little bicycle gang. Oh, I want a ladies bicycling brand. Yes. I I want, like, my ass to say Kitty Knox. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Did I, do you know that Jeremy used to race bikes? I bicycles? did not. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, oh, no, he's, and he, he to, rides bike, but I didn't know that he raced. Uh, he used to race, like, in, like, the, what is it called? The Velodrome? I don't know. Whatever. I just know two um, thoughts. <laughs> like, like, for real bicycle racing. Wow. And uh, he also used to play bike polo. <laughs> oh, that is delightfully white. <laughs> right? <laughs> Although, funnily, I mean... Amusingly enough, it was in the Lower East Side, so... Well, yeah, because you can't have horses. So. Yeah. <laughs> Still. <laughs> That's true. And it was also... Whiter hips. Pretty bloody. Yeah. Really? Um, okay. What? You, I just think of, like, croquet on bikes. What, what kind of... Uh, you wipe out more frequently on bikes and you take more risks than you might when you're riding on a horse and you get closer to each other. Oh, that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yep. Bikes are much easier to topple than a horse. 
Yeah, so there is there are some pretty gnarly <laughs> moments. <laughs> Speaking of gnarly moments, I think that brings us to <gasps> the, the weekly, weekly worst way, way to die. <laughs> yes. So what's yours? Eh, cholera. That's a shitty one. I think that this is probably the same one that I said during that other episode, but it's me. So just getting an article of my clothing caught in my bicycle chain and like ended up like taking a, <laughs> taking a lethal hit. <laughs> taking a lethal hit. Or, or just, you know, taking it off a hill. <laughs> falling off a bridge. <laughs> I mean, I have literally been hit by a truck while Oof. on a bike. That's not good. Don't recommend. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not. It's not on my 2023 20, no. mood board, so. I got a really nice scar. <laughs> Scars are fun. From my pedal going through my ankle. Oh, <laughs> pedals used to be fucking lethal. Do you remember the pedals of art of our growing up that were like metal and. The metal with yeah. the teeth? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so do, do, do you want to be spooky internet friends? As opposed to gory bicycle friends. So we can, hey, one and the same. You never know. You know, one could lead to the other. If you want to know this girl gang, you can join us at, uh, find us at Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of the interwebs, or you can just pop on by bonesandbobbins.com. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast. Please. Yes. Because it pleases the internet gremlins, and that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us. Bring. Don't let us get buried alive. No! Don't let us. Don't let us. And also bring forth the morbid souls. Yes. And on that All note, that. let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Mm-mm. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. (laughs) Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.